Buddhist geeks. Seriously Buddhist, seriously geeky. Episode 84, Dream Practices, Comparing Dream Yoga and Lucid Dreaming. Imagine if you do all sorts of experiments in a completely non-physical virtual reality. Well, you can. Practices like dream yoga, which arose out of the Tibetan tradition, and lucid dreaming, a modern dream practice pioneered by Stephen LeBurge, allow us to expand and dissolve the self while in the dream state. B. Alan Wallace joins us to discuss both of these methods. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a one-time or a small recurring donation by visiting buddhadharma20.com slash donate. Hello, Buddhist geeks. This is Ryan Olke, one of the hosts for Buddhist Geeks. I'm here with Alan Wallace, one of our favorite interviewees, and I'm here with Vince Horn as well. Hey. So we're talking to Alan today about dream yoga and uh, something Alan has written about, and uh, we hear he's going to be writing more about. We've, we've read a lot about lucid dreaming practice in the Western context, as well as dream yoga, and we've seen some correlations between that. And we also, we wanted to kind of contextualize all this in terms of Buddhist practice. It's, it's interesting for me, I've read a, a little bit in several books on dream yoga and Tibetan tradition and lucid dreaming, but it seems to have a quieter seat amongst Buddhist practice. I don't hear it talked about as much, but as Tenzin Wangyal Rinpoche says, we, we waste eight hours a night in, uh, by not doing any practice there. So it also seems something quite profound to know and, and to actually look into and, and perhaps implement it a practice. So I wonder if you could say a little bit about dream yoga just to kick off our conversation and how that's been important in the Tibetan tradition. Yeah, well, it's certainly rooted in India. Uh, and I've not seen any evidence for it in the Theravada tradition or in the Pali canon. Uh, it, nor in the kind of the Sutrayana or the Mahayana tradition as such. It really appears more in the, in the context of Vajrayana, tracing back to Naropa, tracing back to Padmasambhava. So rooted in India, but really flourished, really took, came into flower in the Tibetan tradition. And it's a type of insight practice where you're gaining insight into the very nature of the mind, appearances to the mind by way of dream yoga, that is nighttime practice, of becoming lucid in the dream, that is, recognizing the dream state as the dream state mm. while you're dreaming, but then running experiments. I mean, it's fascinating mind science, frankly, because the first thing is to become lucid and stabilize in the lucidity of an ongoing flow of knowing that you are dreaming while you're dreaming. Mm. And then there are further stages of practice, the likes, the likes of which I've not seen in any other tradition, of uh, really then exploring the mind within the context of the dream. And one can say, frankly, that the a lucid dream is the absolutely optimal, I don't want to be too strong here, it's a, it, it's, it is a marvelous laboratory mm-hmm. for actually studying the mind and the configurations of the mind. The reason I say that is when you're in the midst of a lucid dream, everything you're experiencing consists only of configurations of consciousness or configurations of the mind. They're all mental phenomena. Mm. That is, if you're looking at a rock in a dream, there is not one single physical particle, there's not an atom, not a molecule in that rock that is physical, mm-hmm. because this rock is purely, it's just an appearance to the mind. It may be hard, great, that's just a hard sensation, that's an appearance of the mind. And so your own identity, your own awareness, all the appearances in the dream, all your emotions, everything you see, touch, feel, everything is only the mind. And so if you want to study the mind, you're now in a laboratory where everything you experience consists only of the mind. 
Now, this is, this is a corollary to be in a, in a top-notch physics lab. And in, top right. notch, in a physics lab, everything you see is physical. <laughs> you know, everything you see around you, it's all made out of atoms and molecules. So that's great. You, you throw a stone in any direction, it's going to hit something physical, and you can look at it and study it. Right. So physics labs are made out of entirely out of physical stuff. Here's a mental lab where everything is made out of mental stuff. So to understand the nature of the mind, this is really a marvelous platform. And right. its role, the role is to, underst- uh, to understand the nature of the mind, the, the illusory nature of appearances. And in classic dream yoga, there is nighttime practice and daytime practice. And these two are, have kind of a reciprocal or symbiotic relationship. And that is by practicing dream yoga during the daytime, meditating on the dreamlike or illusory nature of appearances in the daytime, all of the pashana, then you carry over those insights into the nighttime, and now it's not dreamlike, it is a dream. But now, mm. what is the nature of a dream? And you gain deeper and deeper insight into the very nature of all dream phenomena, including your own persona, your own identity in the dream. And then you come back, and now having much clearer insight into the very nature of dream reality, now when you come back to the waking state, now when you say it's dreamlike, you can really push how similar to a dream state is this. So the, the, the two types of insight from daytime to nighttime really reinforce each other. And the whole of dream yoga practice then is really a very sophisticated type of vipassana or insight practice. Yeah, you said a couple of things there that I thought were really powerful. And one is just how isolated and pointed the, the dream state is for practice. That's what when I started reading about that, I was like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I've <laughs> been not doing anything uh, with respect <laughs> to dream practice because like you said, it's so just isolated, focused on mental phenomena. Um, whereas yeah. in normal meditation, we have a lot of things to deal with that where it can kind of get in our way as obstacles to focusing in on that. Sure. Of course, for me, I've, I've noticed that becoming lucid is the first step, right? I mean, once you're lucid, it seems like then you have something to work with, but that's perhaps the obstacle in the beginning is compared to meditation. Like right now, I could sit down and meditate and actually put into a practice. But when I go to sleep at night, I'm, I have the intention and then what do you know, I wake up the next morning and <laughs> and nothing's happened. So, um, <laughs> right. so, so I think there's some sort of practicality thing that some people run into. I know some people are just naturals. They they read a book on lucid dreaming and they're like, oh, that sounds fun, and they do it that night, and they're able to implement that. So, do you think that lucid dreaming is and and dream yoga practice is more challenging than our typical meditation, or is that just some illusion that Ryan's creating right now? <laughs> well, you know, it simply varies a lot from one individual to the next. As you wow. find it out, and, and I've, I've done, I think, about a half dozen, co-led a half dozen or so, a uh, 10-day workshop with Stephen LeBerge, who I think is at this point probably the world authority on lucid dreaming. Yeah. And from all this experience with him and having taught dream yoga for years myself, it's really clear that people come in with widely varying degrees of sheer talent. Mm-hmm. Just like for right. baseball or art or music or mathematics, mm-hmm. some people are really gifted. And as you said, they may just read a book or some people without even reading a book, they just naturally every week or at least every month have a, have a lucid dream. Others have you know, lived for 50 years and never had a lucid dream. <laughs> some people it's fairly easy to train. Other people find it much more challenging. At the same time, some people find meditation very challenging. They just can't sit still. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and other people find that relatively easy. So a lot of variety here, but frankly, it's, like, it's a variety like for so many other human endeavors. Right. But there is, a, there is a point of distinction here, and that is often in the Tibetan tradition, Dream yoga, as it's included, for example, among the six yogas of Naropa, mm. uh, a system of meditation I'm sure you're familiar with, mm-hmm. very advanced. It's, this is all stage of completion kind of practice. So within Vajrayana, this is advanced practice. Dream yoga is right there in the midst of those six yogas. Uh, it's presented as quite an advanced training, and mm. one is very strict. When, uh, I've heard at least one lama say, well, before you venture into dream yoga, 
You should be really an accomplished practitioner of stage regeneration practice, so mm-hmm. Vajrayana practice with great elaborate visualizations and so forth and so on. So it's often presented as a very advanced practice, and that's something that beginners should even be thinking about. Mm. And then that could be a bit intimidating. Oh, I shouldn't try that. You know, it's way too advanced. Right. On the other hand, you made a really good point about it connecting our practice from day and night. And that's what I've always found yeah. uh, wonderful about Buddhist practice. And, and, you know, my study of Tibetan tradition is not leaving anything sitting around. Like you're, all your, your waking time and, and, and sleep time can be used for practice. And so in some sense, it seems important to do something with that or have some sort of awareness or practice around that. Indeed, yeah. So at the very least, even if one is not particularly gifted, let's say for dream yoga, nighttime dream yoga, that Mm -hmm. is gaining lucidity and then really running experiments on the nature of consciousness within a lucid dream, even if one is not particularly gifted, nevertheless, you can can apply apply the principles and practices of dream yoga in the daytime, and that can be wonderfully transformative. But you know, but coming back to the kind of the central point of nighttime dream yoga, mm-hmm. as you commented, the first step is becoming lucid, knowing you're dreaming when you're dreaming. Right. And you know, having worked for years now, must be 15 years or so with Stephen the Bears, because we were right. at Stanford together uh, in the 90s, 1990s. Mm. This modern discipline of lucid dreaming, in which Stephen the Bears has been a total pioneer. He's right. not the only one, but he's really outstanding. They've, you know, through their scientific empiricism, they've come up with a number of techniques that just work well. Yeah, and so instead of instead of trying for weeks and months on end, you know, having the strong result, tonight I'll have a lucid dream. Tonight I'll recognize the dream, <laughs> right. and then failing week after week, right. month after month, you know, thinking, "Geez, how resolved do I need to be here? I'm I really want to succeed, and I'm not succeeding." What Stephen LeBerge and his colleagues have done is they break this down into smaller pieces. Here's a, a ancient problem-solving strategy. If you have a large problem you can't solve, break it down into smaller problems, and break it down into smaller problems right. until you get ones you can solve. And so, as Stephen has pointed out so often, if you can't even remember your dreams, then even if you had a lucid one, you wouldn't remember it. <laughs> right. Like, right? Yeah. And so, a lot of people hardly ever remember their dreams. Yes. And why? A lot of them aren't even paying any attention. If you don't pay attention to something, you probably won't be aware of it. If you're not aware of it, you won't remember it. Right. And so, this is an elementary deal. And that is, all right, uh, tonight... I may or may not have a lucid dream, but tonight I'm going to really pay attention to my dreams. And the first thing in the morning when I wake up, I will not move. I'm going to emerge from sleep Mm -hmm. and I won't move physically. I'm going to stay still. And I'm going to immediately, as I'm kind of rising into waking consciousness, I'm going to immediately revert my awareness and try to recall what was the last thing I remember. And then you may remember a dream. And then as you become more experienced in this, more acquainted with it, then you get more detail, and they say, oh, I remember two dreams. Oh, remember three dreams. Mm. I remember one colleague of mine was trying to say, remember six, five or six dreams a night. Mm. And you not only remember them, but in, in this lucid dreaming training, this modern discipline, you start keeping dream journals. Yeah. And so when you write down something, then it again kind of re- reinforces to your psyche, yeah, I'm serious here. I do want to remember these, and that's why I'm writing them down. This is a big deal. This is important to me. That reinforces it, and then that enables you to remember more dreams. That gives you more writing down. The more writing down then reinforces the interest in remembering the dreams. Mm-hmm. And so th- this is a step that a lot of people can do of just recalling the dreams. And then within recalling the dreams, then you can start looking for dream signs. Right. These are recurrent, right. recurrent dreams, re- recurrent signs, that is, people, activities, moods, environments, and so forth that crop up time and again in dreams, and you start noting those, the different types of dream signs or characteristics of the dreams, and then you can start anticipating. Tonight, if, for example, one of my recurrent dream signs is traveling, and often in my, in my dreams, especially oh, years ago, 
often I was traveling. I was in an airplane or an airport or a train station. And so since those occurred a lot, then in falling asleep, then you can anticipate tonight, if I find myself traveling, that's going to be my sign, my indicator. Hey, you're dreaming. Recognize this is a dream. And so there's a, I won't try to go into the whole instructions on lucid yeah. dreaming, but what I will say in short is these very innovative, ingenious people like Stephen LaBerge and other researchers in the field, they've broken the big problem down into a lot of little problems. Mm-hmm. And they've been able to bring hundreds and hundreds of people into you know, becoming reasonable adepts at lucid dreaming, making it accessible. And Stephen LaBerge himself has commented, you know, that he, he feels that the, the Tibetan Buddhist practice of dream yoga is much deeper yes. than the modern techniques and theories of lucid dreaming. But I would say, in, in tribute to him, that these lucid dream researchers, they've made it much more accessible. Right. So this shows a great, a great, great complementarity between the two. For depth and profound transformation, look for dream yoga. For accessibility, look for lucid dreaming. Yeah, I really feel that uh, Stephen LaBerge is not just describing something, but he's, he seemed to be really innovative in providing, like you said, accessible steps. And, you know, I've read other Tibetan dream yoga books, and it seemed almost like reading a book that just said, shaman is possible, but without all the stages. And exactly. with LaBerge, it was very much like, oh, here's step one I can do. And exactly. broke it down into to achievable stages. So mm-hmm. I thought that was amazing. And one other thing in, in his book he did, which was also inspiring, was not only did he break down various techniques and steps, but he also took time to describe various ways that you can use lucid dreaming practice, yeah, which included yeah. spiritual contemplative realization, but also uh, several other you know, more relative uh, benefits. So I wonder if you could say a little bit about that, why lucid dreaming and, and dream yoga practice is beneficial, not just in contemplative practice, but uh, for our daily mm-hmm. lives, much like you described uh, concentration being beneficial for, for both. Sure. Well, you know, you, you have a virtual reality there. And that is, if you have problems with people, then you can, if you're in the midst of a lucid dream and you've had, let's say, interpersonal problems of just knowing how do I engage with this person, well, you can conjure that person up in your lucid dream, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, by using dream transformation, invoking people in the dream, situations in the dream, and it's almost like running a skit, you know, like having your own playhouse. And you can imagine being with these people and engaging with them in a different way. And so Stephen has described quite a number of ways within the context of a lucid dream to work with psychological problems, but also develop psychological skills, uh, gaining insight in the, into the nature of one's own psyche. And of course, the sheer entertainment value, I mean, it just, you, it's, uh, there you are in a virtual reality. Right. You can create all kinds of situations for you that are just sheer, very enjoyable, mm-hmm. uh, interesting, you know, problem solving. Uh, some people will meditate in a dream, that is, they'll sit down and practice uh, a certain type of meditation. When I did my first long shamatha retreat uh, back in 1980 uh, under the guidance of the Dalai Lama in in India. Uh, I was meditating, I think, about 10 hours a day. And then I would find in the dream, I was doing the same practice, the same meditative practice that I was doing in the waking state. It would just carry right over because I've been doing so much of it. There I was in dream reality, but doing the same meditation. So, Mm. yeah, there's just a lot of creativity there and just exploration. I think Stephen LaBerge really points that out as well, is be an onironaut. Or Nironaut, as an astronaut, oh, but thanks. an astronaut for the dreams. Mm. You know, to approach this in a whole spirit of adventure. Now right. is the time to explore this whole other kind of dimension of reality we call dream reality. And so he's laid out quite a number of just very intriguing ways of you know, exploring the degree of the, uh, the changeability of the dream. Mm-hmm. We'll have people run, run experiments like, here, now you know you're dreaming, you're in the midst of a dream, here's a wall in front of you. Since you know you're dreaming, then you know there's not one physical particle, there's not a single atom in that, in that wall in front of you. It's mm-hmm. a big configuration of your own mind. 
So try running through it. So run, right. run experiments, run through it. And, uh, and then <laughs> what happens in the midst of a dream when you, you run face forward into a wall? Do you bounce off of this dream wall or can you get through it? Right. And, yeah. uh, you know, so <laughs> I, I won't give the whole story there, but it's quite fascinating. Can you, can you levitate? Can you breathe underwater? You know, can you shape change? Can you ch- shift your own form? Right. And you shift the form of other people. And it's quite an extraordinary adventure uh, right. to see. In terms of parallel, Stephen makes a very interesting point as a, as a very good psychologist, with obviously a strong basis of science. He said, you know, the waking state, our waking reality, waking experience, is a dream state constrained by the physical environment. Mm, that's a good way of putting dreaming, it. Dreaming is a dream state without constraints by the physical environment. So if I should look at, I'm looking right now at a wall in my room and it's beige and I should think, okay, I want that wall to be blue and I can imagine it to be blue, but lo and behold, the wall doesn't turn blue mm-hmm. you know, because there are molecules there that are emitting photons at certain frequencies and I can imagine whatever I like, alike, but those fo- photon frequencies remain the same and the, and the wall still appears beige. If you're in the midst of a dream and you're looking at a wall and you think, let it be blue. You get a little bit, you know, get an experience of this. It will turn blue. Mm. So there it is. But the, the experience is very similar. And of course, what he's getting at is our experiences of surrounding environment in the waking state. And this is just straight psychology, straight neuroscience. Mm-hmm. The appearances of colors that we see in the surrounding environment—they're not really out there. The sounds we hear in the environment—the sounds aren't really out there. What's out there for sounds are ripples in the atmosphere. What are out there in terms of the the visual are just photons, but photons have no color. And likewise, the tastes are not in the food uh, and so forth. So all of these mm. sensations we have from the five physical senses, they appear to be out there in the external physical world, independent of our own minds. That is an illusion. It's dreamlike. Mm. Uh, there are physical phenomena here. I'm not speaking of some kind of a um, what do you say, metaphysical idealism here, that right. everything is just up to the apparition of the mind, as in the Yogacara system of Buddhism. Mm-hmm. No, science doesn't, on the whole doesn't accept that at all. They say, no, there are real molecules, real photons, real energy out there. Mm-hmm. And we, say, okay, we can say, okay, fair enough, but not these mental images. You know, the mental images of, of visual images, auditory images, and so forth, they're not out there. Right. So this is dreamlike right now, but it's dreamlike with physical constraints. Mm. Whereas in the midst of a dream, it's still dreamlike. No, it's dream but with no physical constraints. Big difference. Mm, that's an excellent way of putting that. Yeah, uh, kind of connecting back with what you were saying uh, earlier, Ryan, about that in lucid dreaming, there are different ways that one can cultivate certain things right. or develop psychological, you know, work with their psychological issues. I was reading recently, uh, What is Enlightenment magazine? Uh, they had an interview with uh, Frank Zane. He's a three-time Mr. Olympia. And he was talking in that article about how he used dream yoga. He had kind of had this archetypal you know, entity come visit him and tell him, you know, you need to develop your dream body just the way you've developed your physical body. And he's like in his 60s or late Mm. 50s now, I think actually in his 60s, and he's got this tremendous physique. And so he started using in the dream state, he started cultivating this dream body using like visualization. And and he actually uh, found that it was helping his physical practice that he'd have these pretty big breakthroughs when he was lifting weights in the gym uh, and connecting these two, I, I found that really interesting, mm-hmm. really speaking to the potential uh, to bridge these two different, seemingly right. two different realms. I was wondering if, Alan, if you uh, had heard any kind of uh, experiences like that, or if that was part of the dream yoga tradition. You know, it's really fascinating. If, if you allow me, I'll, I'll, I'll draw a parallel here. Uh, this was written about by Sharon Bagley in her book, Train Your Mind, Change Your Brain. There was a scientific study done not long ago in New England 
of teaching people piano, and they'd already identified in the brain a particular part of the brain in which the synapses and so forth would develop. The brain would, that part of the brain would get larger, denser, by training piano in terms of the motor skills and coordination with the mind. And they had people some, train at beginning piano for something like six weeks, sitting down at a keyboard, and then they found, lo and behold, yep, just the part of the brain they thought was more developed as a result of this piano training mm. did get developed. Then they took a second group of people, again, with no background in piano, and they had them simply visualize playing the piano mm. for the same amount of period each day and, and six weeks or whatever it was. But it was only a mental exercise of imagining you're sitting at a keyboard and imagining your mental fingers going up and down the keyboard. And they found that the effect on the brain was the same. It's hmm. amazing. Of actually imagining it as opposed to actually doing it physically. So this, I'm, I'm saying, here's a pretty strong parallel with this fellow that wanted to develop his body, his physique, and doing it in the mind, that is, he's doing it in, in a dream, which is like hyper-visualization. I mean, it's so real, you, you can easily mistake it for waking reality. Mm. Uh, but as for bodybuilding or whatever particular type of training he was doing, imagine other kind of skills. Imagine, imagine being very shy, for example. Mm. Imagine that you have stage fright, and you just can't get over it. Whenever you get up there, you just start trembling and whatever. Well, okay, get into a lucid dream. And now get on your dream stage in front of an audience and start singing or speaking. But, you know, get over that psychological problem in the dream. And lo and behold, you'll probably have gotten over it in the waking state. Or a backhand in tennis. Can you, can you put yeah. a, a top spin on your backhand? Well, try it in the dream. <laughs> you know, just, whether it's athletics, whether it's personal skills, whether it's creativity, problem solving. You know, in the, in the Buddhist tradition, they say overall, the state of consciousness that is your ground state in a dream, that is kind of your modus operandi in a dream, is more subtle than therefore more powerful, potentially more creative in the dream state mm. than it is normally in the waking state. And so therefore, in terms of creative endeavors, I'm sure you've heard of many, many cases of great insights and discoveries in music and science and so forth taking place in a non-lucid dream. Mm -hmm. Well, imagine then harnessing that and getting lucid in the dream, and then opening up that same creativity, but now doing it completely voluntarily, deliberately. Mm. So for all kinds of endeavors, the dream yoga is just a very high potential a state of consciousness in which to do some really creative things. So Alan, is that, is that how you're writing all these books? <laughs> <laughs> well, the meditation is actually a bit more helpful for me. <laughs> and then having wonderful teachers and wonderful colleagues. I'm, mm. I'm deeply blessed by all the connections. It's wonderful. Well, Alan, thank you so much for sharing all that about lucid dreaming and dream yoga practice. I really hope it inspires um, our listeners and I definitely was inspired by it and uh, ready to go gear up some more is, for practice. <laughs> yeah, well, this is one more, one more area. You know, the fact that we had scientists involved in the Shamatha Project, mm -hmm. this big scientific study of meditation, this encouraged the meditators. The fact that meditators were so diligent and, and apply themselves, derive so much benefit, that inspired the scientists thinking, oh, wow, this was great. Let's mm -hmm. do another one like this. And so there's a lot of mutual inspiration and cross-pollination. Mm -hmm. And likewise, in these two really quite independent disciplines, and that is lucid dreaming, which Stephen LeBerge did on his own. He didn't learn this from some Tibetan Lama. And other people, again, who are naturally gifted, developing these, this whole discipline of lucid dreaming, independently of dream yoga. Dream yoga, of course, occurred long before this scientific discipline of lucid dreaming. One more area where the interface between the ancient and the modern, the Eastern and the Western, mm. the scientific and the contemplative, can really deeply enrich each other. So I think this is just, a, in this regard, quite a thrilling era of history to be in, where we're bringing these great traditions, the scientific tradition and as many different facets, 
multiple contemplative traditions, and there are many, many different facets. Bringing these together for the very first time in human history, that's a pretty big deal, don't you think? Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.